Chapter Seven, Part Two of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We had advanced in this manner probably two miles when we discerned in the distance the approach of Captain Hamilton's party. They were returning leisurely to camp after having succeeded in driving off their assailants and inflicting upon them a loss of two warriors killed and several wounded. The Indians could only boast of having wounded a horse belonging to Captain Hamilton's party. This encounter with the Indians occurred in the direction taken by Major Elliott's detachment on leaving camp, and the Indians after this repulse by Captain Hamilton withdrew in that direction. This added to our anxiety concerning the safety of Major Elliott and his men. There was no doubt now that all Indians infesting the broad belt of country between the Arkansas and the Platte Rivers were on the warpath, and would seek revenge from any party so unfortunate as to fall in their way. The loss of two warriors slain in the fight, and their wounded comrades, would be additional incentives to acts of hostility. If there had been any possible means of communicating with Major Elliott, and either strengthening or warning him, it would have been done. He left us by no traveled or defined route, and it was by no means probable that he would pass over the same trail in coming from Fort Sedgwick as in going to that point. Otherwise, reinforcements could have been sent out over his trail to meet him. On the 27th, our fears for the safety of the Major and his escort were dispelled by their safe return to camp, having accomplished a ride of nearly 200 miles through an enemy's country. They had concealed themselves in ravines during the daytime, and traveled at night, trusting to the fateful compass and their guide to bring them safely back. Now that the Major and his party had returned to us, our anxiety became centered in the fate of the larger party, which had proceeded with the train to Fort Wallace for supplies. The fact that Major Elliott made his trip unmolested by Indians proved that the latter were most likely assembled south of us, that is, between us and Fort Wallace, Wherever they were, their numbers were known to be large. It would be impossible for a considerable force, let alone a wagon train, to pass from our camp to Fort Wallace and not be seen by the Indian scouting parties. They had probably observed the departure of the train and escort at the time, and divining the object which occasion to sending of wagons would permit them to go to the fort unmolested, but would waylay them upon their return in the hope of obtaining the supplies they contained. Under this supposition, the Indians had probably watched the train and escort during every mile of their progress. If so, they would not fail to discover that the larger portion of the escort halted at Beaver Creek, while the wagons proceeded to the fort guarded by only forty-eight men, in which case the Indians would combine their forces and attack the train at some point between Fort Wallace and Beaver Creek. Looking at these probable events, I not only felt impelled to act promptly to secure the safety of the train and its escort, but a deeper and stronger motive stirred me to leave nothing undone to circumvent the Indians. My wife, who, in answer to my letter, I believed was then at Fort Wallace, would place herself under the protection of the escort of the train and attempt to rejoin me in camp. The mere thought of danger to which she might be exposed spurred me to decisive action. 
one full squadron well mounted and armed under the command of lieutenant colonel myers an officer of great experience in indian affairs left our camp at dark on the evening of the day that captain hamilton had his engagement with the indians and set out in the direction of fort wallace his orders were to press forward as rapidly as practicable following the trail made by the train written orders were sent to his care to colonel west who was in command of that portion of the escort which had halted at beaver creek to join colonel myers command with his own and then to continue to march towards fort wallace until he should meet the returning train and escort the indians however were not deprived of this opportunity to secure scalps and plunder from our camp to beaver creek was nearly fifty miles colonel myers marched his command without halting until he joined colonel west at beaver creek here the two commands united and under the direction of colonel west the senior officer of the party proceeded to fort wallace following the train left by the wagon train and escort if the escort and colonel west's forces could be united they might confidently hope to repel any attack made upon them by indians colonel west was an old indian fighter and too thoroughly accustomed to the indian tactics to permit his command to be surprised or defeated in any manner other than by a fair contest let us leave them for a time and join the wagon train and its escort the later numbering all told as before stated forty-eight men under the immediate command of lieutenant robbins colonel cook whose special duty connected him with the train and its supplies could also be relied upon for material assistance with the troops in case of actual conflict with the enemy comstock the favorite scout a host in himself was sent to guide the party to and from fort wallace in addition to these were the teamsters who could not be expected to do more than control their team should the train be attacked the march from camp to beaver creek was made without incident here the combined forces of colonel west and lieutenant robbins encamped together during the night next morning at early dawn lieutenant robbins party having the train in charge continued to march towards fort wallace while colonel west sent out scouting parties up and down the stream to search for indians as yet none of their party were aware of the hostile attitude assumed by the indians within the past few hours and colonel west's instructions contemplated a friendly meeting between his forces and the indians should the latter be discovered the march of the train and the escort was made to fort wallace without interruption the only incident worthy of remark was an observation of comstock's which proved how thoroughly he was familiar with the indians and his customs the escort was moving over a beautifully level plateau not a mound or hillock disturbed the evenness of the surface for miles in either direction to the unpractised eye there seemed no recess or obstruction in or behind which an enemy might be concealed but everything appeared open to the view for miles and miles look in what direction one might yet such was not the case ravines of greater or less extent though not perceptible at a glance might have been discovered if searched for extending almost to the trail over which the party was moving these ravines if followed would be found to grow deeper and deeper until after running their course in an indefinite extent 
they would terminate in the valley of some running stream. These were natural hiding places of Indian war parties, waiting for their opportunities to dash upon unsuspecting victims. These ravines served the same purpose to the Indians of the timberless plains that the ambush did to those Indians of the eastern states accustomed to fighting in the forests and everglades. Comstock's keen eyes took in all at a glance, and he remarked to Colonel Cook and Lieutenant Robbins, as the three rode together at the head of the column, that if the Indians strike us at all, it will be just about the time we are coming along back over this very spot. Now mind what I tell ye all. We shall see how correct Comstock's prophecy was. Arriving at the fort, no time was lost in loading up the wagons with fresh supplies, obtaining the mail intended for the command, and preparing to set out on the return to camp the following day. No late news regarding Indian movements was obtained. Fortunately, my letter from Fort McPherson to Mrs. Custer asking her to come to Fort Wallace miscarried, and she did not undertake a journey which in all probability would have imperiled her life, if not terminated it in a most tragic manner. On the following morning, Colonel Cook and Lieutenant Robbins began their return march. They had advanced one half of the distance which separated them from Colonel West's camp without the slightest occurrence to disturb the monotony of their march, and had reached the point where, on passing before, Comstock had indulged in his prognostication regarding Indians, yet nothing had been seen to excite suspicious alarm. Comstock always on the alert, and with eyes as quick as those of an Indian, had been scanning the horizon in all directions. Suddenly he perceived, or thought he perceived, strange figures resembling human heads peering over the crest of a hill far away to the right. Hastily leveling his field-glass, he pronounced the strange figures, which were scarcely perceptible to neither more nor less than Indians. The officers brought into requisition their glasses, and were soon convinced of the correctness of Comstock's report. It was some time before the Indians perceived that they had been discovered. Concealment then being no longer possible, they boldly rode to the crest and exposed themselves into full view. At first but twenty or thirty made their appearance. Gradually their numbers became augmented, until about a hundred warriors could be seen. It may readily be imagined that the appearance of so considerable a body of Indians produced no little excitement and speculation in the minds of the people with the train. The speculation was as to the intentions of the Indians, whether hostile or friendly. Upon this subject all doubts were soon dispelled. The Indians continued to receive ascensions to their numbers, and reinforcements coming from beyond the crest of the hill on which their presence was first discovered. Finally, seeming confident in their superior numbers, the warriors, all of whom were mounted, advanced leisurely down the slope leading in the direction of the train and its escort. By the aid of field glasses, Comstock and the two officers were able to determine fully the character of the party now approaching them. The last doubt was thus removed. It was clearly to be seen that the Indians were arrayed in full war costume, their heads adorned by the brilliantly colored war bonnets, their faces, arms, and bodies painted in various colors 
rendering their natural repulsive appearance even more hideous. As they approached nearer, they assumed a certain order in the manner of their advance. Some were seen to be carrying the long glistening lance with its pennant of bright colors, while upon the left arm hung a round shield, almost bulletproof and ornamented with paint and feathers according to the taste of the wearer. Nearly all were armed with carbines and one or two revolvers, while many in addition to these weapons carried a bow and arrow. When the entire band had defiled down the inclined slope, Comstock and the officers were able to estimate roughly the full strength of the party. They were astonished to perceive that between six and seven hundred warriors were bearing down upon them, and in a few minutes would undoubtedly commence the attack. Against such odds, and upon ground so favorable for the Indian mode of warfare, it seemed unreasonable to hope for a favorable result. Yet the entire escort, officers and men, entered upon their defense with the determination to sell their lives as dearly as possible. As the coming engagement, so far as the cavalry was concerned, was to be purely a defensive one, Lieutenant Robbins at once set out preparing to receive his unwelcome visitors. Colonel Cook formed the train in two parallel columns, leaving ample space between the horses and the cavalry. Lieutenant Robbins then dismounted his men and prepared to fight on foot. The lead horses, under charge of the fourth trooper, were placed between the two columns of wagons and were thus in a measure protected from the assaults, which the officers had every reason to believe would be made for their capture. The dismounted cavalrymen were thus formed in a regular circle, enclosing the train and the horses. Colonel Cook took command of one flank, Lieutenant Robbins of the other, while Comstock, who as well as the two officers remained mounted, galloped from point to point wherever his presence was most valuable. These dispositions being perfected, the march was resumed in disorder and the attack of the savages calmly awaited. The Indians, who were interested spectators of these preparations for their reception, continued to approach, but seemed willing to delay their attack until the plain became a little more favorable for their operations. Finally, the desired moment seemed to have arrived. The Indians had approached to within easy range, but not a shot had been fired. The cavalrymen, having been instructed by their officers to reserve their fire for close quarters, suddenly... With a wild, ringing war-whoop, the entire band of warriors bore down upon the train and its little party of defenders. On came the savages, filling the air with their terrible yells. Their first object evidently was to stampede the horses and drought animals of the train, then, in the excitement and consternation which would follow, to massacre the escort and drivers. The wagon-master in immediate charge of the train had been ordered to keep his two columns of wagons constantly moving forward and well closed up. This last injunction was hardly necessary, as the frightened teamsters, glancing at the approaching warriors and bearing their savage shouts, were sufficiently anxious to keep well closed upon their leaders. The first onslaught of the Indians was made on the flank, which was superintended by Colonel Cook. They rode boldly forward as if to dash over the mere handful of cavalrymen who stood in skirmishing order in a circle about the train. Not a soldier faulted as the enemy came thundering upon them. 
but waited until the Indians were within short rifle range of the train. The cavalrymen dropped upon their knees, and taking deliberate aim, poured a volume from their Spencer carbines into the ranks of the savages, which seemed to put a sudden check upon the odor of their movements, and force them to wheel off to the right. Several of the warriors were seen to reel in their saddles, while their ponies of others were brought down or wounded by the effectual fire of the cavalrymen. Those of the savages who were shot from their saddles were scarcely permitted to fall to the ground before a score or more of their comrades dashed to their rescue and bore their bodies beyond the possible reach of our men, this in accordance with Indian custom in battle. They will risk the lives of a dozen of their best warriors to prevent the body of any one of their number from falling into the white man's possession. The reason for this is the belief which generally prevails among all the tribes that if a warrior loses his scalp, he forfeits his hope of ever reaching the happy hunting ground. As the Indians were being driven back by the well-directed volley of the cavalrymen, the latter, overjoyed at their first success, became reassured and set up a cheer of exultation, while Comstock, who had not been idle in the fight, called out to the retreating Indians in their native tongues, taunting them with their unsuccessful assault. The Indians withdrew to a point beyond the range of our carbines, and there seemed to engage in a parley. Comstock, who closely watched every movement, remarked that, there's no such good luck for us as to think them Injuns mean to give it up so. Six hundred red devils ain't going to let fifty men stop them from getting at the coffee and sugar, that is in the wagons, and they ain't going to be satisfied until they get some of our scalps to pay for the bucks we popped out of their saddles a bit ago. It was probable that the Indians were satisfied that they could not dash through the train and stampede the animals. Their recent attempt had convinced them that some other method of attack must be resorted to. Nothing but their greater superiority in numbers had induced them to risk so much in a charge. The officers passed along the line of skirmishes, for this in reality was all their line consisted of, and cautioned the men against wasting their ammunition. It was yet early in the afternoon, and should the conflict be prolonged until night, there was great danger of exhausting the supply of ammunition. The Indians seemed to have thought of this, and the change in their method of attack encouraged such a result. But little time was spent at the parley. Again the entire band of warriors, except those already disabled, prepared to renew their attack and advanced as before, this time, however, with greater caution, evidently desiring to avoid a reception similar to the first. When sufficiently near the troops, the Indians developed their new plan of attack. It was not to advance in mass as before, but fight as individuals, each warrior selecting his own time and method of attack. This is a habitual manner of fighting among all Indians of the plains, and is termed circling. First, the chiefs led off, followed at a regular interview by warriors, until the entire six or seven hundred were to be seen riding in single file as rapidly as their fleet-footed ponies could carry them. Preserving this order and keeping up their savage chorus of yells, war-roops, and taunting epithets, this long line of mounted barbarians was guided in such a manner 
as to envelop the train and escort, and make the latter appear like a small circle within a larger one. The Indians gradually contracted their circle, although maintaining the full speed of their ponies, until sufficiently close to open fire upon the soldiers. At first the shots were scattered and wide of their mark, but emboldened by the silence of their few but determined opponents, they rode nearer and fought with greater impetuosity. Forced now to defend themselves to the uttermost, the cavalrymen opened fire from their carbines, with most gratifying results. The Indians, however, moving at such a rapid gait and in single file, presented a most uncertain target. To add to this uncertainty, the savages availed themselves to their superior, almost marvelous powers of horsemanship. Throwing themselves upon the sides of their well-trained ponies, they left no part of their persons exposed to the aim of the troopers except the head and one foot, and in this posture they were able to aim the weapon either over or under the necks of their ponies, thus using the bodies of the latter as an effective shield against the bullets of their adversaries. At no time were the Indians able to force the train and its escort to come to a halt, the march was continued as an uninterrupted gait. This successful defense against the Indians was in a great measure due to the presence of the wagons, which, arranged in the order described, formed a complete barrier to the charges and assaults of the savages, and, as a last resort, the wagons could have been halted and used as a breastwork, behind which the cavalry, dismounted, would have been almost invincible against their more numerous enemies. There is nothing an Indian dislikes more in warfare than to attack a foe, however weak, behind the breastworks of any kind. Any contrivance which is an obstacle to his pony is a most serious obstacle to the warrior. The attack of the Indians, aggravated by their losses in warriors and ponies, as many of the latter had been shot down, was continued without cessation for three hours. The supply of ammunition of the cavalry was running low. The fourth troopers, who had remained in charge of the led horses between the two columns of wagons, were now replaced from the skirmishers, and the former were added to the list of active combatants. If the Indians should maintain the fight much longer, there was serious ground for apprehension regarding the limited supply of ammunition. If only night or reinforcements would come was the prayerful hope of those who contended so gallantly against such heavy odds. Night was still too far off to promise much encouragement, while as to the reinforcements, their coming would be purely accidental, at least so argued those most interested in their arrival. Yet reinforcements were at that moment striving to reach them. Comrades were in the saddle and spurring forward to their relief, the Indians, although apparently turning all their attention to the little band inside, had omitted no precaution to guard against the interference from outside parties. In this instance, perhaps, they were more than ordinarily watchful, and had posted some of their keen-eyed warriors on the high line of the bluffs, which ran almost parallel to the trail over which the combatants moved. From these bluffs not only a good view of the fight could be obtained, but the country for miles in either direction was spread out beneath them, and enabled the scouts to discern the approach of any hostile party which might be advancing. Fortunate for the savages that this precaution had not been neglected, or the contest in which they were engaged 
might have become one of more equal numbers. To the careless eye, nothing could have been seen to excite suspicion. But the warriors on the lookout were not long in discovering something which occasioned them no little anxiety. Dismounting from their ponies and concealing the latter in the ravine, they prepared to investigate more fully the cause of their alarm. That which they saw was as yet but a faint dark line on the surface of the plain, almost against the horizon. So faint was it that no one but an Indian or a practiced frontiersman would have observed it. It was fully ten miles from them and directly in their line of march. The ordinary observer would have pronounced it a break or irregularity in the ground, or perhaps the shadow of a cloud and its apparent permanency of location would have dispelled any fear as to its dangerous character. But was it stationary? Apparently, yes. The Indians discovered otherwise. By close watching, a long, faint line could be seen moving along, as if creeping stealthily upon an unconscious foe. Slowly it assumed a more definite shape, until what appeared to be a mere stationary dark line drawn upon the green surface of the plain developed itself into the searching eyes of the red man, into a column of cavalry moving at a rapid gait toward the very point they were occupying. Convinced of this fact, one of the scouts leaped upon his pony and flew with almost the speed of the wind to impart this knowledge to the chiefs in command on the plain below. True, the approaching cavalry, being still several miles distant, could not arrive for nearly two hours, but the question to be considered by the Indians was whether it would be prudent for them to continue their attack on the train, their ponies already becoming exhausted by the three hours hard riding given them, until the arrival of fresh detachment of the enemy, whose horses might be in a condition favorable to a rapid pursuit, and thereby enable them to overtake those of the Indians whose ponies were exhausted. Unwilling to incur this new risk, and seeing no prospect of overcoming their present adversaries by a sudden or combined dash, the Indians decided to withdraw from the attack and made their escape while the advantage was yet in their favor. The surprise of the cavalrymen may be imagined at seeing the Indians, after pouring a shower of bullets and arrows into the train, withdrew to the bluffs, and immediately after continue their retreat until lost of view. The victory for the troopers, although so unexpected, was none the less welcome. The Indians contrived to carry away with them their killed and wounded. Five of their bravest warriors were known to have been sent to the happy hunting ground, while the list of their wounded was much larger. After the Indians had withdrawn and left the cavalrymen masters of the field, our wounded, of whom there were comparatively few, received every possible care and attention. Those of the detachment who had escaped unharmed were busily engaged in exchanging congratulations and relating incidents of the fight. In this manner nearly an hour had been whittled away, and far in the distance in their immediate front fresh cause for anxiety was discovered. At first the general opinion was that if it was the Indians again determined to contest their progress. Field glasses were again called into requisition and revealed, not Indians, but the familiar blue blouses of the cavalry. Never was the sight more welcome. 
The next moment Colonel Cook and Comstock and a few troopers applied spurs to their horses and were soon dashing forward to meet their comrades. The approaching party was none other than Colonel West's detachment, hastening to the relief of the train and its gallant little escort. A few words explained all, and told the heroes of the recent fight how it happened that reinforcements were sent to their assistance, and then was explained why the Indians had so suddenly concluded to abandon their attack and seek safety in quietly withdrawing from the field. End of chapter 7